This episode of Strangely Enough is brought to you by BlackSparrowMedia.com. Episode 7 of Strangely Enough. My name is Richard. I'm sorry we missed last week. We just had too many things going on and it was not possible for us to get an episode out. However, we have made some improvements in the studio here. Uh, It's a hot one down here in Texas. One of the things we've been doing here over the last week is installing uh, some new climate control in the studio. And uh, that ought to make us a whole lot happier, which makes for a better... uh, better show y'all hang around at the end uh, i've got some information about uh, some new and exciting stuff that's going on with uh, strangely enough and uh, i'll give you all that information at the end so let's go ahead and get started uh, here a week or so back we talked about professor sabruta roy and uh, things he's doing out at the university of florida uh, this week we have an article from uh, news and science at uh, abc ABC Science. Uh, it's called Ionized Air to Power Flying Saucers. Uh, new wingless saucer-shaped aircraft is scheduled to take to the skies. Just don't call it a UFO. Professor Sabruta Roy, at, uh, a scientist at the University of Florida, calls his aircraft a wingless electromagnetic air vehicle, or weave. We talked about the weave. And if it flies... He says it could usher in a new age of aircraft design. If this works and we are able to fly it, this will be a quantum shift in how we see flying objects, says Roy. The weave will use a uh, physical phenomena known as magnetohydrodynamics, which was uh, used in Hunt for Red October uh, the Russian captain Marco Ramius's submarine, Red October, was powered by a magneto-hydrodynamic drive. The fictional submarine engine had no moving or rotating parts. Instead, it used a series of electrodes that ionized the water and pushed it out the back of the submarine, silently pro- propelling it forward. Whether a craft moves through uh, water or air, the principle is the same. In Roy's weave, there will be two different sets of electrodes placed on a thin ceramic plate. One set will be located on the top and one will be located on the bottom of the craft to move ionized air downward, providing lift. Another set along the side to propel the aircraft forward. The electrodes create a conducting fluid by ionizing the surrounding air into plasma. The force created by passing the electrical current through this plasma pushes around the surrounding air and that air creates lift and momentum. While the aircraft has no moving parts, the craft will spin to provide stability. The same way the uh, barrel of a rifle spins a bullet to make it fly straight. This wouldn't be the first aircraft to fly using magnetohydrodynamics. 
says Anthony Calaza, a researcher at NASA's Glenn Research Center, who is not involved, hang on a second, not involved in Roy's work. According to Calaza, about eight years ago, a NASA team used an ionized air propulsion, used ionized air propulsion, that's what I said, to fly an aircraft that was attached to an external battery. Now, this is, vehicle is not going to be for space. When they first did it, they thought it was miraculous, an anti-gravity machine. All that stuff, says Calaza. Then they stuck it into a vacuum, and it didn't move. The new aircraft needs air, or at least a magnetic field, in order to operate. Therefore, it wouldn't work in space or fly between planets, although Roy says it could fly missions on other planets. And don't expect the weave to zoom away from the Earth like flying saucers in the movies. Escaping Earth's gravity pool is a different ball game altogether, says Roy. Roy estimates that the first test flight could happen in as little as four months. If successful, the physics of magnetohydrodynamics lend themselves to larger craft, making larger-scale versions of the weave possible. Whether the aircraft actually flies or not, it is already generating interest. NASA and the U.S. Air Force have both contacted Roy, and UFO theorists have latched on to the development. We've been getting many phone calls and emails. You wouldn't believe it, says Roy. And that comes from, like I said, ABC News. And I find this is inter- this pretty interesting, and we're going to go ahead and follow this uh, best we can for a while, because uh, who knows? It may actually turn into something that... Uh, could be a boon to travel. Okay. Uh, also from ABC Science, we have one. Uh, actually, under that it says it looks like it comes from Reuters. Moon Mare once held water. And for those of you who are not familiar, Mare are the uh, the big flat spots. Uh, I think Mare means ocean. On the moon. You know, uh, the man on the moon's face is made up of several of them. Tiny green and orange glass balls brought back from the moon nearly 40 years ago contain evidence that water existed there from the very beginning, say scientists. Using a new method to analyze sand samples brought back from the Apollo, by the Apollo moon missions, scientists believe have found believe they have found evidence of water dating back 3 billion years. Hmm, the language is a little muddled on this. Y'all uh, stick with me. Their study published in Nature could support evidence that water persists in shadowed craters on the moon's surface. It also suggests that the water could be native to the moon and not carried there by comets. Most scientists believe the moon was formed when a Mars-sized body collided with the Earth 4.5 billion years ago. The giant impact would have melted uh, both protoplanets and sent molten debris into orbit around the Earth. Some of this would have eventually coalesced into the moon, but the heat of the impact would have vaporized light elements such as hydrogen and oxygen needed to make water, theoretically anyway. Now the new view 
proposed by Dr. Eric Hawry of Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington developed a uh, technique called secondary ion mass spectrometry. Yeah, say that five times fast. Which could detect minute amounts of elements in samples. His team was using it to find evidence in water in Earth's molten mantle. Then one day, I said, Look, why don't we go and uh, try it on the moon glass? Says Professor Alberto Sal of Brown University, who helped lead the study. It took us three years to convince NASA to fund us. The space agency was also loath to part with any of the precious samples brought back by astronauts during the Apollo mission in the 70s. Sal, Hari, and colleagues were able to get about 40 of the little glass beads and break them apart for analysis. What they found overturned the conventional wisdom that the moon is dry. For 40 years, people have tried to find evidence of water and were not successful, Saul says. Common sense tells us there is nothing. Saul's team did not find water directly, but did measure hydrogen, and it resembled the measurements they have done to detect hydrogen and eventually water in samples from Earth's mantle. The evidence shows that the hydrogen is the sample vaporized during volcanic activity that would be similar to lava spurts seen on the Earth today. We looked at many factors over a wide range of cooling rates that would affect all the volatiles simultaneously and come up with the right mix, says Professor James Van Orman, a former Carnegie research now at Case Western Reserve University. It suggests the intriguing possibility that the moon's interior might have had as much water as the Earth's upper mantle, Hari says. But even more intriguing, if the moon's volcanoes released 95% of their water, where did it all go? Some might still remain at the poles, frozen in the shadows of craters, he speculates. Several lunar missions have found just such evidence. If parts of the lunar mantle contain as much water as Earth's, does this, this implies that the water has a common origin. Yeah, okay. More analysis might answer the question. We will pressure NASA for more samples, Saul says. Will you go ahead and pressure them? Because, you know, whereas I used to be a firm believer in the man, man going to the moon thing, I'm not so much anymore because uh, it's beyond me how it took us eight years the last time, and now they're telling us it's going to take 15 to get back. We've already been there once. So we'll keep an eye on this. Now, in our ongoing uh, uh, coverage of the mass severed foot migration uh, from Stockholm, Sweden, we hear that 
A human foot was found inside a shoe that washed up on a Swedish beach near one of the country's most popular tourist resorts. The discovery was made Tuesday, and uh, it'd be Tuesday the 8th. Tuesday, in Tylosand, near Homstad, on the southwest coast. Police spokesman Christopher Harplinger said it included a shoe containing a sock and a foot inside. Forensic experts in southern Sweden were checking the foot against the National Registry of Missing Persons. In Canada, several running shoes containing human feet have been found on island shorelines along the Strait of Georgia. Canadian authorities say they haven't reached any conclusions about the origin of the feet. And that comes from Fox News. So apparently the mass severed foot migration not only has made it down here to Texas, uh, as we reported a week or so back with the uh, Austin discovery, uh, it's apparently made its way to Sweden, which is possible, uh, taking the transpolar route. Continuing on the severed foot thing, uh, we find ourselves back in Canada again. It uh, seems, as of July the 12th, that was yesterday, as of July the 12th, new leads on the five human feet that washed ashore in British Columbia have been received by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Law enforcement officials said RCMP Sergeant Tim Shields, they've apparently handed it over to him, told the Globe and the Mail newspaper three legitimate sounding missing person leads have come into the Vancouver office investigating the case. The first feet were found on beaches last August. Four were male and a fifth female. And this week, investigators said DNA matches two of the feet from being from the same person. However, no names have been matched to them. Shields said the RCMP has been in contact with the various shoe manufacturers to determine a time frame of the various shoes production. If for the let's see, if for the first time it was manufactured in 2004, we don't need to look at missing person cases in 2003. Well, that makes a lot of sense. He said, meanwhile. Investigators in Sweden are running tests on a man's foot in a sock and shoe found washed ashore Tuesday, the Swedish news agency TT reported. Alrighty, so we've got severed feet just floating around all over the place. Actually, uh, I have, let's see what I got here. I have another article which is about the Vancouver Bunch, which digs a little deeper. Uh, new leads emerge. The RCMP are following three new missing report, uh, missing person report files. They hope are connected with the five feet that have washed up off the southern coast of British Columbia in the past year. Five calls came into the RCMP information line after the police revealed the brand and size of the shoes the feet were clad in said RCMP Sergeant Tim Shields. Two of the calls were hang-ups, and three look like legitimate leads. They're being taken seriously 
they appear legitimate and we're following we are following up as quickly as we can he said they all related to missing people the callers were people who believed they had further information based on the shoes sergeant shields said police have been in contact with the shoes manufacturers nike new balance reebok and campus so they can establish a time time frame as to when the shoe owners could have gone missing investigators are not trying to find what shoes sold what stores sold the shoes and to whom which sergeant shields said would be extremely difficult Nike Canadian spokesman Jane Shaw said the RCMP contacted the company recently for information regarding the two matching size 11 Nike shoes, one found on Valdez Island on February 2nd and the other on Kirkland Island on June 16th. Police said DNA analysis showed the pair came from the same man. Imagine there wasn't a lot of DNA left after several months, but, you know, we press on. Ms. Shaw said she couldn't say when the police contacted them, but it may have been as recently as this week. Nike shoes have information on, on them that would indicate where and when the shoe was made and possibly where it was sold. New Balance spokes New Balance spokeswoman Amy Vreeland said the RCMP have run a check on the model number of the New Balance shoe found on Kirkland Island May 22nd, the only one of the five belonging to a woman. Connecting the feet to the missing person file is investigators' best bet. Coroners and forensic anthropologist investigation, investigations of the feet have yielded little information aside from DNA samples and the victim's sex. Mark Skinner, a forensic anthropologist from Simon Fraser University, said, It's possible to determine a person's age, height, origin, occupation, and even diet from the bones and nails in their feet. But so far, analysts have not succeeded. He said the rash of washed-up feet in British Columbia's shores and the shoe-clad foot found on the beach at Tylosan, Sweden, on Tuesday is forcing forensic anthropologists to rethink their field. These standards are better developed for other parts of the body than the feet, Professor Skinner said. This find of five feet is something we really... I think should have anticipated but haven't adequately and we're going to have to respond better to it. He thinks feet will continue to wash up because more people wear sneakers made of rubber or other floating material than it is this oh there is this natural phenomena of wearing footwear that floats he said. Well there you go. Uh, we're going to continue to keep watching the mass severed foot migration because this is really turning into something big. And in, in the mainstream media down here, you know, I'm down in the south and, uh, well, kind of in the south. And, uh, you know, our mainstream media down here, they 
they really don't pay a lot of, of attention to what's going up in uh, in Canada. But I think this mass severed foot migration is something else. In fact, I have attempted to uh, find a forensic podiatrist to see if maybe he could help us shed light on this. But I'm not having any luck so far. But once again, I will be uh, keeping up on this and going to try and find out more about the one that's going on down in Austin. Okay. Next up, UFO group says object flew toward President's Ranch. And this comes from NBC5I, one of our local news stations down here, uh, the, the NBC affiliate. It's kind of brief. A group of UFO enthusiasts said an object flew toward President G. George W. Bush's Texas Ranch at the time of UFO sightings in January. The Mutual UFO Network is releasing a report based on the Federal Aviation Administration's record at the time of the sightings in the in and around Stephenville, not Stevensville. You guys, it's a skeptic's guide. Stephenville. <sighs> According to the report, the object was bigger and faster than any known aircraft. It flew toward the President's Ranch in Crawford, according to the findings. The President wasn't there at the time. Now, that's the brief one from MBC5I down here in Dallas. Now, Pegasus News, on the other hand, got a little bit more to say about it. Not a lot, but a little. The Mutual UFO Network has released its findings concerning FAA radar records recorded at the time of some of the sightings of unidentified aerial objects seen during a recent Stephenville-Dublin flap. And Dublin is another city down around Stephenville. Of particular interest is the January 8th radar track, which shows one of the objects making a beeline for President Bush's Crawford Ranch. The object's radar signature was apparently detectable for more than an hour, indicating that whatever it was was in no hurry to get where it was going. Maybe just taking it, maybe it was just taking in the sights or tweaking the warp drive or some such. There's only one thing to be said about this revelation, and this is the article, not me, and this isn't it. Thank God they failed to kidnap our commander-in-chief. Now, that's an article that said that. I didn't say that. Actually, tell you the truth, I'm sure that had Mr. Bush, our illustrious leader, been down there, he would have edificated and communicated with them and uh, then probably offered them a barbecue sandwich. Speaking of UFOs, it seems that a UFO has landed in Kirasong, and uh, let me uh, back up a little bit. Kirasong, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, happens to be in the West, West Bengal province or area of India. And uh, they appear that, it appears that one has landed there. Uh, a circular polymer object measuring about three feet in diameter and around a foot and a half tall dropped from the sky 
at Lower Surabari Busty in Castleton T Estate, Kirasong Subdivision. Last evening, generating fear and confusion in the area. Now, looking at this on Google Maps, it looks to be a, like a housing development. Anyway, the uh, Kirasong police took the object in its custody in the presence of Kirasong BDO. And I tried looking up BDO, and all I got was like business development officer, Mr. Manish Verme, today. The administration was contacted has contract, contacted the Air Force authorities at Bagara, near Kirsong, for the identification of the object. The object landed near the house of Mr. Hari Kumar Chetri at around 6.30 p.m. yesterday, and this is dated July the 11th. The object was hot, glowing orange when it fell with a thud. Its heat turned the tin wall of my cattle shed red, Mr. Chitari said. According to the Kirasong BDO, the object has changed color after cooling down. The object is not more than 15 kilograms, is blackish in color, and has several concentric rings, Mr. Verma said. What is curious is that the object did not create a major crater, although it fell from the sky. Curiosity prevails in the area about the identity of the object. Many believe it is part of a satellite. Well, we might even keep an eye on that one. That could be interesting. I'll put it in the keep an eye on it file, and uh, I'll keep y'all posted. Last but not least, we're coming up on it. Uh, it turns out that an English Civil War ghost has been captured on film by paranormal enthusiasts. You got it. A ghostly figure, supposedly the spirit of a dead soldier from the key battle of the English Civil War, has been captured on film by a group of paranormal enthusiasts. The Northampton Paranormal Group caught the figure on camera during a visit to the site of the battle at Naseby, a field between the villages of Clipston and Naseby in Northamptonshire last month. The visit coincided with the 363rd anniversary of the Battle of Naseby. Members said they heard clunking noises as well as the sounds of cannonball fire. When the group then looked through pictures they took during the visit, they spotted what appeared to be a mysterious figure walking out of the dark carrying something in his hands. Emma Whiteman, leader of the group, said the picture was taken about an hour after we heard the noises, but we didn't see anything at the time. When we saw it, when we were looking back through the pictures, we were gobsmacked. Gobsmacked. Um, speechless. Yeah. We're saying that it's a soldier. Some people can see it sitting on a horse, and some people just see it as a walking soldier. The Battle of Naseby 
1645, was a key win for the parliamentarians over the royalists in the English Civil War. The battle involved more than 21,000 troops when the royal army under Prince Rupert <laughs> uh, was beaten by the parliamentary troops led by Sir Thomas Fairfax. Adrian Perkin, an author and ghost detective, said that the image was a soldier with a musket or pike walking through a gateway. He said, if this is genuine, it's a very, very good example. It's the best I've seen in many years. Skeptics said the effect was caused by the camera itself. And I'll tell you what, you know, I need to get back on need to get back on some of my writing. I have a blog that deals with this kind of stuff. But yeah, cameras can really uh, just because you take a picture of it doesn't mean it's real. Anne Haddon of the Naseby uh, Battlefield Project said, I haven't heard anything like this at the battlefield in all my association with it. It's fair to say I'm a bit skeptical. And that comes from the telegraph.co.uk, uh, if y'all are interested. They uh, have a lot of articles similar to that over there, and uh, uh, that's a prime source of uh, information for some of the other pseudo-news-related things that are going on. Uh, my buddy TJ over in Fort Worth from 13 Skulls, he picks up a lot of his stuff there. Okay, that's the end of the news portion. Let me go ahead and throw some information your direction. And as soon as we get that taken care of, we'll be on out of here. We are going a little bit over, but uh, that's okay. We were short last week. Okay, great things are happening. Within the next few days, and that would today is the, well, within the next few days, 13th. Today is the 13th. So, uh, say by the 15th or 16th, there will be forums up for uh, y'all to make show suggestions, uh, leave feedback, and that kind of stuff over at BlackSparrowMedia.com. That's BlackSparrowMedia.com. Uh, go to BlackSparrowMedia.com, click on the uh, forum, uh, forums over in the main menu, and you'll be able to get on. The forums will be uh, absolutely free. There is no charge for that. You may have. We uh, are requesting that people sign up. As a member over at Black Sparrow Media, you will not get spam or junk mail. It is simply to keep the spammers out. And we don't want the spammers in the news groups, but within a couple of days, there will be news groups there for you to communicate with me and Bill should we ever get his audio situation squared away. Uh, you will also be able to leave feedback on the shows, uh, suggestions. If you find articles, you'll be able to send them to me. Uh, that kind of stuff. We can even discuss, set up uh, one particular board for the discussion of the mask severed, mass severed foot migration, if that's what you would like. Uh, other than that, you can reach me at Richard S.E. Richard S.E. at BlackSparrowMedia.com. That's my email address. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Twitter, friend feeds, or there's something else I'm on, uh, BrightCat. But uh, I would suggest Twitter. Twitter's the one I monitor most often. Twitter, friend feeds, right now. So with that, I think we've pretty much covered all of it. And, uh, until next time, everybody uh, be careful out there. And uh, we'll see you next week.
Without you by my side, my sweet Melissa. 